Leading Corporate Transformation, the podcast by VHU Auto Beisheim School of Management, powered by PwC, on the transformation of companies and their culture, from decision makers for decision makers, or from entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. Welcome to a new episode of the VHU podcast, Leading Corporate Transformation, powered by PwC. My name is Martin Glaum. I'm a professor at the VHU, Otto Beisheim School of Management, and I'm one of the co-hosts of this podcast series. With me, as always, is Gori, Gori von Hirschhausen, senior partner at PwC. Gori is our partner in the Leading Corporate Transformation podcast. Gori, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit and then introduce our guest? Yes, thanks, Martin. So first of all, a big hello to all our listeners. So uh, it's so great, actually, to be back with our second season of a Leading Corporate Transformation. Uh, we had some busy months, right, Martin? That's true. Absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, but it's good to be back. And uh, we have a very, very interesting lineup for the second season and look very much forward to our new discussions and all the insights that we will get from all the different talks we will have. So uh, you can look already forward and um, maybe some words on myself. I'm, I'm Guri um, von Hirschhausen, and as Martin was saying, I'm from PwC, and within PwC, I'm leading our transformation consulting business um, in the commercial industrial products and services industries. And uh, beside that, I also have another hobby, which is the finance transformation practice lead within PwC Europe. And so, as you all know, I'm always very interested in understanding how to run complex transformation as successful as possible. And um, so this will, of course, be the focus of our talk to really bring um, transformation from strategy to execution, what the critical success factors are. So all of these questions, we will hope to get answered, some of them today. And um, I think we have a very, very good start for our second season with our first session because we have a very uh, um, prominent guest today. We have Lars Kestle with us. Um, Lars is the CFO of the luxury watch company Breitling uh, that, well, let's put it this way, transform itself very successful at the moment. You have new owners at uh, Breitling, you have a new management, you have new market approaches and um, you grow very strong. So there's a lot on the move at Breitling and uh, Lars, maybe it's a good moment for you to introduce yourself and give a little bit about Breitling um, to learn from to our audience. Thank you very much, Gori and Martin. Also warm welcome from my side. Uh, very happy to be here with you today. Yeah, my name is Lars Kestler. I'm the group CFO of Breitling. I joined Breitling three years ago. Fascinating journey, I can only say. Before that, I was working for more than 20 years in the aerospace industry for Airbus, basically, in various positions, be it from manufacturing, merchant integration, procurement, and finance. Lars, Breitling. Um, Gori already mentioned that. It's a well-known brand. It has a long company history. It's associated with, in a way, your, your, your prior industry experience with aviation. Um, what is the current strategic position of the company Breitling within the market for premium watches? Yeah, thank you, Martin. I mean, Breitling is one of the largest independent manufacturers of Swiss watches in the industry. 
Breitling is a very strong global brand and is among the top five watch brands on the planet. The company used to be family owned until it was acquired by CVC back in 2017. Mm -hmm. Last year, Partners Group of Switzerland did also acquire a share into Breitling. In recent years, Breitling has changed its brand image away from this pure aviation and masculine image towards a more neo-luxury concept, which means that Breitling represents a casual, inclusive, and sustainable interpretation of luxury, while obviously staying close to this watchmaking DNA. Mm -hmm. Our positioning in the current environment and times is what we believe more relevant than ever and is becoming increasingly rooted in the minds of our customers and um, consumers. We position ourselves in this, what we call luxury segment, um, which is ranging from a price level of 3,000 to above 30,000 Swiss francs. We're uniquely a generous brand and one of the few luxury watchmakers that can offer attractive products um, to such a wide range of customers, be it a sportive watch, be it an elegant watch, be it an explorer watch, what is also part of our product offering. This is also supported by our clear positioning and uh, related marketing activation. So for us, Breitling is today the leader in what we call the neo-luxury in the watch industry. We have introduced many innovations um, such as blockchain-based digital wallets um, or the digital twin and NFT delivered with each watch you're buying from Breitling. Sustainability for us is a key topic and uh, we have introduced 100% uh, upcycled packaging made from PET. And we just recently launched the industry's first traceable watch where the entire supply chain is documented. So there's a whole range of stories here, a whole range of also transformation topics. Uh, Breitling, you know, you mentioned that in one of the talks we had um, uh, prior to the interview, uh, you know, you, you, you characterize Breitling as a disruptive competitor in the market for premium watches. Uh, disruptive competitor. What, what does it mean? What is the disruptive element in your strategy? Yeah, we have a tradition of innovation in Breitling. Um, we have invented the first chronograph for airplanes many years ago. Um, we've also invented this modern two-push-piece wristwatch of the chronograph. And thanks to our history, which is more than 140 years, Breitling has an incredible back catalog of models and, and serve an inspiration of new models and uh, define our very innovative style. I mean, if we go more into the um, disruptive elements, we have uh, our brand's first ever traceable watch transparently informs and engages owners about the origin of its precious material. So you buy a watch which is made of gold, where the gold is fully traceable and uh, you can see where the gold was mined. The precious materials such as diamonds are lab-grown diamonds and you also can follow where those diamonds were produced, what was the uh, footprint of those diamonds, where they are from. And with this provenance records on the owner's blockchain-backed NFT that details the responsible measures taken along the supply chain 
and uh, be it from the gold side or from the lab-grown diamond side. Maybe let me follow up on the disruptive element of your of your uh, strategy. I was just walking past your new boutique in Munich the other day, mm -hmm. and it looks like this is really a different language to the market that you use. It looks like a new brand. You reposition um, Breitling. So how important is the brand itself? How important is it to, uh, to uh, increase um, the focus on the brand itself? It's very important. And indeed, one of our strengths is the brand and the high brand awareness, not only in Germany, but also in markets like the US and the UK, And, and also more and more in Asia. The strength for us from a brand perspective is that we are a very compact brand. What does it mean? I mean, you can basically summarize this in three core elements. One, it's a so-called true generous brand covering the variety of products, what we discussed before from, yeah. you can even say from tuxedo to beach. Yeah. Second, We have a very clear design language, um, which can be described as modern retro. This means modern products inspired by our rich heritage. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, Breitling is today the leader, what we call this neo-luxury in the watch industry, which means the brand embodies three fundamental values, what I'm convinced will shape the watch industry and luxury goods industry in the decades to come. It's casual luxury, representing a shift to a more relaxed and informal interpretation of luxury. Inclusive luxury, meaning that Breitling is approachable for our customers, for instance, in the way we communicate online and offline, or how we interact with the customers in our boutiques. And lastly, it's sustainable luxury, embracing the fact that we all play a role in protecting our planet and need to do the best what we can within our sphere of influence. I mean, all of us, the three of us have a finance background. So maybe, um, Lars, you can tell us a little bit how this translates into revenues, how this translates in the number of employees you have at Breitling. And of course, with the, the uh, value add that you were describing with the power of the brand, the question comes, um, how is, can you tell us a little bit about how you grow in the market? Yeah, we are substantially growing in the market over the last uh, five years. It's a double-digit growth, what we're achieving year on year. And we see that our strategy is paying off. Um, this modern retro, this inclusive luxury interpretation, also the loft style in the boutiques. The consumers are very, let's say, appreciating the way we are interacting with them and just also the beautiful products we are selling. Um, that leads to that substantial growth over the last years. We almost doubled the revenues over the last five years. Can you tell us a little bit about the revenues? Something that we at least have a <laughs> certain understanding of the size. Let's say we are uh, on a good trend um, and uh, exceeding 900 million of wow. revenues. Okay. Um, wow, that's mm. big. Yeah. Yes. Interesting. How many people do work for Breitling? Can you? Yeah, it's around 1,500 people okay. on a global basis, um, where uh, which are producing um, the beautiful products as well as working in our subsidiaries in the countries around this planet. 
So when you say producing, that would uh, interest me. What is it that you actually do? You right? I mean, when when I, if I if I buy a Breitling, what is produced actually at Breitling of that watch? How is your your depth of of the production, so to speak, uh, of of the value added in that product? So first of all, every Breitling watch is Swiss made, uh -huh. and usually ninety percent of our watch is being produced in Switzerland, either in-house or together with our suppliers. So when you look uh, into the manufacturing process, uh, we have two facilities where we produce. One is in Latchotfond and the other one is in Grandchen. In Latchotfond is our manufacturing center. And basically the manufacturing can be described into three major steps. One is the movement manufacturing, the second one is the manufacturing of components, and the third one is the watch assembly process. On the manufacturing of the movement, I mean, this is arguably the most complex steps for mechanical movements. Mm -hmm. It includes the machining and assembly of around more than 100 pieces or components to create the engine of the watch. And Breitling is one of the largest manufacturers of chronograph movements in the world. And our in-house B01 movement is known for its robustness and beauty. The second step, the manufacturing of components. This step encompasses the manufacturing of all watch components outside the movement, including the case, dial, hands, as well as bracelets, straps, and buckles. Um, there's a high or highly specialized network of expert suppliers supplying most players in the Swiss watch industry. And we procure those parts. The watch assembly process, this is the final step um, of the manufacturing process where the movement is fitted into the case of the watch and all the external components are mounted together. And this is also a critical step, obviously, for quality control. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I mean, um, I told you I was getting uh, uh, walking along the uh, the boutique in Munich and looking at the watches. It feels like you know um, when I was young, um, Breitling was already, of course, uh, being positioned as a luxury watch brand, and you had uh, beautiful watches. But it looks like they have changed recently in the design. They do look. Uh, th there are interesting new colors you introduced. So, how important is design in this whole play of watches? It's very important and also <clears throat> that's uh, very clear design language. Uh, what we have, uh, as I mentioned before, mm -hmm. is very important. And we also have quite a number of novelties a year where we try to pick up recent design trends, recent market trends, uh, be it in capsules or be it in, um, in, in within the product line, what we offer to our customers. Looking at the uh, luxury watch market itself. You have big competitors like Rolex or uh, the Swatch Group uh, or Richemont, for example. What would you say? Um, how are you positioned in this market? You were talking about the growth. You were talking about the size of revenue you have. Um, how do you compare yourself and how important is size to this market? Yes, yeah, scale is important, uh, of course. I mean, whenever it comes to the cost of goods sold and better fixed cost absorption, um, it is obviously very important. However, in the luxury goods industry, next to scale, the brand is extremely important. And as I described before, we have a very strong brand um, with our um, 
the clear design language with that neo luxury where we believe that we are really picking up the current mood of our customers and consumers um, with the strong products uh, we are offering to them. And also from a distribution perspective, we follow a very strong omnichannel strategy, which means that we are growing our direct-to-consumer business while also working in all other distribution channels. For us, it's an important avenue of growth and also compared to our competitors. For example, Rolex is a pure wholesaler. And with our omni-channel approach and particularly growing this direct-to-consumer um, and also our e-commerce activities, um, which is a, cre a clear requirement and a key requirement to increase customer intimacy and drive both conversion rate and loyalty towards our customers. So, so how does it function? I mean, omni-channel, I understand that. Uh, E-commerce, I obviously also understand the concept. But for luxury brand, online selling, is that, isn't that a contradiction somehow? And, and how does it work for you? No, it's both. It's, it's part of that omni-channel approach. Mm -hmm. Because today you see customers going into boutique, looking at the watches, trying them on their wrist. Uh, while at the same time, they have already engaged before via online, mm -hmm. have checked the web page, went through the product portfolio, trying to see what kind of products uh, could fit to them. And it's both. You have people going in the boutique first and maybe then buying the watch online or the other way around. Very interestingly, we have seen our e-com sales growing in those cities where we operate a boutique. Oh, okay. That's interesting. I mean, um, looking at the watch market, it sometimes looks a little bit crazy at the moment because uh, there are certain watches, if you go to, uh, to a store, you don't get them from some brands like Rolex. Um, what does it tell us about the market and how can you make an advantage out of this shortage of watches of others? And do you can, can you go to a shop and just get a Breitling and walk away with it? Or is it also that you have some watches where you need to wait? I mean, we obviously try to serve our customers. You also mm -hmm. have waiting lists in, okay. in Breitling. It depends on the models, but our waiting list is probably three to four months. Okay. And we really try, uh, which is a big challenge for us, to increase our production together with our supply chain and serve our customers and really bringing um, the watches into the trades as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. So we talked a lot now about the mechanic watch market, right? So Rolex, Glashütte, Omega, these are mechanic watches. Um, but it's interesting to see Apple was one of the first who entered the watch market and there was a lot of interesting uh, rumors around that time. I remember that this is going to replace the whole luxury uh, watch market. So um, are mobile phone or let's say tech companies like Apple, is this your competitor? Is this going to replace mechanic watches? Smart watches and high-end mechanical watches are, in our view, complementary products and serve different needs. I mean, in these digital times, people are more and more looking for tangible emotional objects and appreciate an analog watch um, because it's like a craftsmanship, mm -hmm. um, what they're looking for. 
I mean, if you look into this Swiss watch market, um, you basically have three categories. You have this uh, so-called entry level with retail prices of around 500 uh, Swiss francs. You have this mid-luxury segment with retail prices chain ranging between 500 to 3,000 Swiss francs. And as we discussed earlier, we have that luxury segment uh, with prices above 3,000 Swiss francs. And Breitling is positioned in this luxury segment. And for us, I mean, we are growing in that segment and which is not really accessed by these smartwatches, uh, which are more in this range of 500 to 1,000 Swiss francs or more in this entry-level segment. And also, we see currently that this luxury watch market has been extremely resilient to the introduction of smartwatches, which has not interfered with the consumer appetite for higher price point watches. Sometimes you see people wearing both. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. In addition, and that's probably even an advantage, I mean, younger generations are used to wear smartwatches. So they have something on their wrist. And at a point in time, they add a luxury timepiece as an expression of their personality, of their value system. So it could sequently, you can say for the luxury watchmarking industry, I believe that value and consumer behaviors have changed. So less than ever people buy watches to read the time. I mean, this was much better, much better um, with your iPhone. More than ever, luxury watches are an expression of a specific value system, art, craftsmanship, something emotional. Mm -hmm. um, I would like to come back to another aspect of this concept and of your of your strategic approach you were mentioning that your strategic approach comprises three elements the casual element the inclusive element and the sustainability element um, I would like to talk a little bit about the sustainability element which I think for consumers especially for younger people now becomes more and ever more important so in your communication you emphasize sustainability at the same time, your brand is traditionally associated with aviation. It's the pilot's watch. And uh, especially in the climate debate, right? aviation is seen by some at least more and more critically. So how does that fit, you know, your, your, your traditional association with, uh, with aviation and your, and your traditional image with the ESG or sustainability strategy? Yeah, it's a very good question indeed. Uh, I mean, first of all, I mean, you know, Breitling cannot change the world. However, we try to make a difference in our sphere of influence. Sustainability is extremely important to us. For us, sustainability is a transformative process. We have a very solid sustainability roadmap in place that builds upon efforts made over the last years. We introduced, as I said in my introduction, this upcycled uh, econeal straps from ghost fishing nets. And we are using 100% upcycled or recycled PET bottles to produce our packaging. And we are trying to make our products traceable with these recently launched uh, concept 
where precious materials, be it gold, be it lab-grown diamonds, are totally traceable in the value chain. And as you're mentioning our link to aviation, we entered a first-of-its-kind partnership with Swiss and will purchase sustainable aviation fuel, the so-called SAF, um, for all our business-related um, flights operated by Swiss, beginning retroactively for the entire calendar year 2022. With the purchase of the respective amount of SAF, we will introduce related CO2 emissions by 80%. Breitling will achieve carbon neutrality on its air travel by offsetting the remaining CO2 emissions through investing in high-quality carbon offsets. I mean, achieving this CO2 neutrality on our work-related Swiss flights for us is an important step to reduce our emissions and through the purchase of SAF, uh, we believe that we make a contribution at least to the sustainability transition in the aviation industry. And yes, you're right. I mean, uh, we have been closely linked to this industry since the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Going a bit more deeper into this um, sustainability mission, um, we basically work around several pillars. We call it product, planet, people, and prosperity. And even more so, the intersectionality among these subjects. In our product pillar, we are improving the social and environmental impact of our products and services. We are sourcing artisanal and small-scale gold, lab-grown diamonds, upcycled packaging and straps. We are rolling out blockchain-backed provenance records our entire product collection until 2025. So it's not just the one-off, it's part of our Mm -hmm. core strategy that every product is traceable in that way. And of course, engaging with our suppliers to increase the sustainability performance. On the planet pillar, we are reducing our environmental footprint, transitioning to renewable energy, eliminating plastic waste in our production, Um, We align our efforts with key international frameworks and offset all of our carbon emissions along the way. So given that that seems to be a very, how shall I say, broad and cross-cutting approach, how is that reflected in your your organization? And um, specifically, uh, what is your role in that as CFO? Yeah, from a governance perspective, I mean, the ESG agenda is regularly reported to the Breitling Board of Directors. There's even a subcommittee of the Board of, the board of Directors existing dealing entirely with ESG and is also supported by the Audit Committee. So it's the joint um, effort we are undertaking in the company with a dedicated organization um, within Breitling um, dealing with sustainability matters, be it on the product side, but also on the people and planet side every day. Sustainability, of course, is at the top of the agenda of many CFOs at the moment, or let's let's put it right, on every CFO's agenda. But at the same time, every CFO that we are currently working with uh, is also challenged by the current environment. So rising commodity prices, exploding energy prices, um, the, the the certain shortage of, of certain uh, goods. So how does all of these circumstances do 
have an impact on, on you as Breitling? Yeah, indeed. I mean, like everybody on this planet, Breitling is also exposed to inflation and, and shortages. However, in terms of magnitude of it, it's rather limited. Mm. Because, I mean, to produce a watch is from an energy perspective, a rather small footprint compared to other industries like the chemical industry, metal industry, car industry, sure, sure, for example. Yeah. And also from a sourcing perspective, uh, a lot of it is, is sourced in Switzerland, as we were just discussing. While in Switzerland, the inflation is at lower levels. It's around 3% these days. On the other hand side, I mean, we are running a value creation program, trying to improve our operational excellence through dedicated measures, which helps to also fight inflation, fight our cost increase on the production shop floor or on the sourced materials. On the other hand, I mean, we are operating in an industry where also you have uh, the possibility in line with your peers um, to increase prices. I mean, looking at uh, the current challenges, the biggest challenge for many companies at the moment, of course, is also the impacts of the Russian invasion into the Ukraine. So um, maybe looking at the Russian and the Ukraine war, how important are these markets for you? What is the is there a direct impact of this conflict on, on your business? I mean, there are several macro developments that have an impact on our business. Of course, um, the tragic war in Ukraine was a key global event that impacted our business, if only in a very minor way from an economic perspective, certainly in terms of the responsibility for our employers, for employees and partners in the market, it was much yeah, sure. Yeah. And, and maybe another market that is very interesting uh, and important to the luxury brand market from what I would expect is the Russia uh, is beside the Russian market, of course, the China market. How, how important is China to you and how is business doing at the moment in China with all the restrictions when it comes to to uh, um, the, the shopping and, and uh, people not being able to really go out and uh, do their uh, luxury, <laughs> let's say, shopping tour? Yeah, indeed. I mean, China is, is really a big challenge. I mean, for us, we are pretty much flat year on year in China from our business evolution. However, for the industry, um, sales have, have fallen quite significantly in the last months, driven predominantly by this very strict zero COVID policy mm -hmm. in many Chinese provinces. Yeah. It will be interesting to observe now post-lockdown, given the latest uh, news from China, how the consumer behavior um, will develop going forward. Maybe it will not return as quickly as we have seen uh, in other countries and from previous lockdowns. I mean, for Breitling, China remains um, a double-edged sword. On the one hand, for us, it's one of our major white spaces um, and as such a market with tremendous growth potential. On the other hand, I mean, the drastic measures of this China's zero COVID policy have created significant headwinds um, for local businesses, um, but even more so for our competitors who have much larger exposure to China or to Chinese sales. We are preparing basically ourselves 
to come back stronger from this crisis in China, similar to what we have done in situations in Europe and the US after COVID. Interesting. So the regular listeners to our podcast know that our podcast all of, always follows certain you know, a sequence of, of, of big topics. We first talk about the company and its strategy, and then we move on to the finance area. And I want to touch now on, on a topic that is actually at the intersection of company strategy and finance, which is your ownership structure. So you are owned by private equity. And uh, my first question in that regard would be, you know, how, how does that impact uh, and, and maybe also co-determine the company's strategy? And uh, what's the impact on your day-to-day -day running of the firm? Yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, <laughs> we are a very entrepreneurial company. And as for every entrepreneur, I mean, it's very important to have a clear communication towards your shareholders, to be close to them, to uh, have a clear view on value creation, and obviously a clear-cut strategy in place. Transparency is key in, in such a context. And in, and in that terms, the CFO role, of course, um, is very prominent and uh, to present an objective view of the organization's finances, performances, how do we compare to market trends, to our competitors, the trends from previous quarters, forward-looking statements are key. And in that entrepreneurial spirit, um, we have a very constructive dialogue um, between the board and the management team with intention of steering the company into an even more successful future. This does not mean that we have no discussions. It's pretty much just the opposite. <laughs> okay. Usually there are lots of questions, further ideas to improve a proposal or increase the ambition. However, and this I think is very important, always empowering the management team and holding them fully accountable. So in summary, I mean, there's an excellent cooperation because also it's very solution-oriented. The advantage of private equity is that you can act and decide extremely quickly. I mean, just take what we have achieved over the last four to five years. In a larger group, we might have only achieved this over 10 years or more. A somewhat more specific question. Uh, you were explaining that you are very successful with your growth strategy that over recent years you actually doubled revenue. Um, how, how do you finance this kind of, of acceleration, this kind of growth? What's, what's the financing behind this? And maybe as a, uh, how should I say, as an added on question, does the recent increase in interest rates, uh, you know, pose some challenge for you in this regard? I think there are two elements uh, to it. We do finance our activities from our own cash flow. We call it the virtuous cycle, which, which is a concept okay. known, um, which means that scaling the business allows to further improve. In other words, the more revenues you're generating, um, the more profitability you are able to achieve, which is ending into better cash flows that in return can be reinvested, or at least a significant portion of those, into your business, which again further improve your revenues and then further increase your EBITDA generation and your cash flows in consequence, which is this virtuous cycle. 
And this is what we're currently seeing also in Breitling. We're growing substantially. We are even growing faster on our profitability. And we're generating more cash flows, which we are reinvesting and also using to pay interest. And as usual in a private equity setup, uh, you have a, you're leveraged. So you have a debt structure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, maybe that's a good uh, segue to our next section, which is around your role as a CFO. But maybe let, let's uh, uh, finalize this question with your ownership structure on what does it mean for you as a CFO acting in this private equity uh, environment? I mean, um, are you the one who often needs to say no to Georges Kern and his uh, great ideas about investments? <laughs> you know, for me... Um The role of finance is um, is always a role to find solutions. I mean, saying no is a very is very <laughs> simple. It's maybe too simple. <laughs> and uh, yeah. as entrepreneurs, we always try to find the best solutions, the best ideas, and trying to improve decisions for the benefit of the company to create value. So uh, what we are doing is we are assessing. Uh, I mean for many activities, be it, um, for example, if we try to, if we are finding a new location for a boutique, we have an investment committee, we look into the location, we have a business case for each and every boutique, and then trying to optimize it, be it from a location perspective, um, be it from um, a cost structure perspective, for example, on the rent side, is it the right location or not? And how can we drive performance into this one? Also on our marketing expenditures, we always try to see what is, how do we spend each Swiss franc in the best and most effective way. Digital marketing is crucial from that. We transformed our marketing expenditures uh, to more digital marketing spending. Almost two thirds of it is, uh, is for digital marketing. So it's less saying no, is more to have a view on how to spend the money in a smart way and be very cost conscious. Yeah. This sounds like your finance function. So it's not yourself. It's the whole function of finance within Breitling needs to act smart. Right. And so you were saying the business cases need to be managed. Uh, we need to be there to find solutions. All of this, of course, brings effort to the organization. So um, what, Can you say about how is finance organized within Breitling? So are you having many people on, on your finance team? Do you have uh, a lot of controlling or is there more controlling than accounting? Maybe you can tell us a little bit about how your finance organization looks like. Mm. No, we have a classical structure in our finance organization. Uh, we have a controlling team. Uh, we have an accounting team. We have treasury We have tax, I mean, given the fact that we are operating on a global basis. Um, we have also um, finance directors in each of our subsidiaries, so in the countries. And we have a rather, let's say, normal finance setup from a capacity perspective. It's always constrained. I mean, like every other function, of course, people are asking for more <laughs> capacity yeah, since sure. we are growing. Um, but also as finance, uh, you should be the role model uh, in terms of efficiency and how to move forward, trying to be as efficient as possible uh, with digitalization in place. And it can always be more. So we're just at the beginning to further automate our activities, our processes. 
but yes, it's a, it's a pretty substantial workload. So of course, what we do see in the marketplace is a lot of digitization in the finance function. And of course, also the introduction of advanced analytics to learn more about all the data that are available to better understand um, your, your environment to take better uh, management decisions. So how's the role of this, let's say, digitization for your finance function? How digital would you say is, is finance within Breitling? And how do you look at topics like advanced analytics? probably similar to a lot of other companies you can always digitalize further you need to see what makes sense is there a good cost benefit ratio into that and it's a journey mm -hmm. and and we have embarked on that journey of course we can digitalize further we are comprehensively rolling out um, the sap as for hana template in all the countries be it for finance, uh, be it um, also on the sales side, um, be it further modules for budget forecasting and allocation, um, sales operation planning. Um, we're doing it on the EIP side of it. And at the same time, of course, advanced analytics are also very important for us. We do it for geolocalization. When, whenever we look into a boutique location, trying to calculate uh, potential footfall, cannibalization with other um, point of sales. We do it on the demand planning side, uh, whenever we launch a new product and also what is the right pricing of that new product. Uh, we use advanced analytics. And of course, uh, whenever it comes to that omni-channel approach, when we talk about our customers, is the understanding of our existing and future clients, collecting the data, activating the data to better engage with our clients and prospects at the right time, right content, with a pertinent call to action. That's also what we are looking at. So it goes much beyond finance. I would like to talk about a topic that is also, besides digitization, that is also very trendy and has been so for some time, and that is blockchain. Uh, if I understood you correctly, at the beginning of the interview, you alluded to the fact that you seem to use blockchain technology in some of your activities. I also read in press reports that you can actually buy Pridling watches with cryptocurrencies. <laughs> is this correct? Uh, I, I also read that it's only possible in the US, and if so, why only over there? So how does it work? Yes, that's correct. I mean, there's a pilot running in the US. Um, however, we do not have receivables in crypto. Um, we have them only in fiat currencies. So the payments, it's, it's like you pay with a credit card. So it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's a payment provider who's converting on the fly um, our receivables from crypto into US dollar. So you actually don't hold the cryptocurrency yourself? Because I was wondering about that with the enormous volatility, how you would manage that, that would be- No, we looked into this very carefully for quite a uh -huh. long period of time and then decided um, to use this, I think very smart setup in a way that uh, the receivables are in US dollar because we serve the US market mm -hmm. there, while we use a service provider in the middle at pretty attractive fees is comparable to a credit card fee and receiving um, fiat currencies. Interesting. Another thing that I think you also mentioned before is that you issue non-fungible tokens, NFTs for your watches. 
that's at least what I understood. And if you could elaborate on that also, because that's also very unique, it seems to me. But very important. Okay. We're doing this for more than almost three years now. And the biggest benefits of watches having a digital passport is, I mean, you can, coming back to this customer experience, watch owners can experience an improved connection with Breitling and enjoy that enriched watch ownership with a, such an NFT in place. So we also have the full visibility whenever a watch is being sold globally, because then the... Um, Guarantee is activated with that NFT token and you see immediately the sellouts every day in whatever point of sales we have on a global basis. And also, I mean, going forward, um, we are able to offer further services for after sales. Mm. Just take the example, a mechanical watch after a number of years needs to be maintained, you know, the movement and, um, and the like. So today you hand in your watch for maintenance service. It takes four to six weeks, sometimes even longer, and you don't know where the watch is, what is going to happen with the watch. So it's a black box. But this NFT also allows you to have a customer experience to really, it's like following your parcel when it's being delivered. So what happens to your watch? Where is it? What is currently being done with the watch? When it does come back? So you have the full customer experience mm -hmm. on that one. Another use case is what we discussed before, the traceability of your watch. So you just see from a blockchain perspective, what are the materials being used to produce the, your watch? Where's the precious material coming from? Where, where are they? Where's the movement? Um, what has happened to each of those elements, components that are being used for your watch. Looking at the time, maybe Lars, it's uh, now the moment to switch uh, gears and to talk a little bit about yourself and your, uh, your career. So before you were joining Breitling, you were working in the uh, aero uh, space um, business at Airbus Premium Aerotech. So you were working there. You also have an engineering background, if I uh, remember this correctly. Um, so my question is, coming from this industry, working in such a, let's, let's say, large-scale group, what was it that you learned there the most? And why did you got out of the comfort zone and jumping in to become a more entrepreneurial CFO with Breitling? First of all, I'm very grateful to my 20 years in Airbus. It's a fabulous company offering a lot of opportunities. Imagine I was starting there as an engineer, um, working in program management, in operations, doing merger integration, working in procurement, entering the finance field via investor relations. I think there are very rare companies offering you the opportunity to develop yourself in a very interesting, very international environment. So it's, it was an amazing journey. It was um, a great opportunity to learn and um, working also for very exciting products. But after several years, I always wanted to become a bit more entrepreneurial And I got to know private equity uh, many years ago. And um, there was an immediate connection to that industry and in particular to CVC. 
And at a point in time, they were coming back to me and uh, were offering um, to work as a portfolio CFO in Breitling. And I thought it's a great opportunity becoming shareholder of the company, working in that entrepreneurial environment, a new industry. I was always motivated by learning things, getting into a, a new environment. So I took the challenge and I do not regret one day of that. So Airbus, you know, is a, a very, very large, very international company. And given its history and its, its peculiar structure, it has the reputation of being very political as well. Uh, now you work for a private equity owned company and you already mentioned it's very fast. What is it that you can take with you from this very long experience that you had uh, gathered at Airbus to uh, make use of here at your new role? Yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, you know, in Airbus, you you were learning to deal with crisis. Crisis management is, is key. I mean, uh, the civil aviation industry is a very cyclical industry. You had 9-11, SARS, mm -hmm. credit crunch, uh, lots of further challenges, uh, be it on the FX side and others. A luxury goods industry usually is, is more resilient. However, I think it's also a good benefit to deep dive into the cost base, to optimize structures, becoming more efficient. So in, in other words, take the best of both worlds. And particularly when starting and COVID emerged, um, it was very helpful to be crisis proofing to manage brightening through the crisis and emerging stronger out of the crisis with better cash management and even with a higher profitability. Looking at the time, we need to come to an end. Maybe uh, a final question on, on your Vita, uh, Lars, or some advice you might want to give to uh, young professionals in finance. So if you want or if you dream about becoming a CFO of a portfolio company in a private equity environment, what would you say? What should people try to do to qualify themselves to maybe become CFO of such a company? What are the important steps you should take that qualifies you to get there? I mean, for me, uh, like in every other function, I think the ability to learn is very important. That always you, you listen, You try to understand uh, any challenge or any problem in trying to find solutions. I mean, particularly in finance, it's not about saying no, Gori, <laughs> yes, as you mentioned yes. earlier. <laughs> it's I always define finance and coming from the aerospace industry as co-piloting the business. Is really trying to anticipate issues, trying to uh, find solutions and like, co-pilot saying left or right and of course the pilot needs to trust you mm -hmm. so there needs to be a very good team in place that is um, able to steer the company mm -hmm. to listen to the co-pilot and then to become even more successful so to take it uh the, the, the takeaway is to have this kind of make it happen attitude with a finance competence that helps you to drive and and of course also challenge the business Indeed, and understanding the business. Okay. I mean, that's why it's it's really important 
that's of course coming with an analytical view, with a finance background, but also trying to understand be it the technical problem, be it the commercial problem, be it also from a marketing perspective, challenges in order to jointly develop a solution for the benefit of the company to become more efficient and even more effective. We have made it a tradition in this podcast uh, to ask our guest at the end of the interview uh, whether you have a recommendation for reading a book recommendation or maybe also for another podcast, if you like. Anything that comes to your mind that you would uh, recommend to our listeners? Yes, actually, I have two book recommendations. Ooh, okay. One more on the scientific side, uh, the other one more on the belletristic side. So on the scientific uh, side, it's Auf der Suche nach der Wahrheit. The book is written by the well-known professor Hans-Werner Sinn, um, who is an emeritus of the LMU in Munich and the former president of the Eastfu Institute of Economic Research. It's a very interesting book dealing with Hans-Werner Sinn's impressive career and the development of the economy during the recent decades. I mean, he's intellectually, precisely, and very sharply analyzes the root causes of main economic challenges like Brexit, monetary policy, and others. In the same spirit, uh, he gave also recently an interview to the pioneer about the energy transition, stating that Germany is a wrong-way driver on the highway. His thesis is always very sharp and, and easy to understand, but highly pointedly. And provocative as and per very usual. provocative. <laughs> yes, um, absolutely. And also at that time, I mean, mm. he even mentioned in that article that he was already talking about the risk of inflation back in December 2020. For him, identifying the monetary policy of the ECB as one of the major inflation drivers. In other words, well before the energy price hikes and, and these things. On the belletristic side, it's a book written by Mark Ellsberg, And it titles Blackout, Morgen ist es zu spät. A very current issue. However, the book was already written, written around 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, it deals with the breakdown of all European electricity networks. In December 2012, um, Blackout was awarded as the most exciting scientific uh, book of the year. Although the book is rather a thriller, I mean, It is written in a totally realistic way and really well-researched. I mean, the author even once said in an interview that he was pretty much surprised that his first invitation after releasing the book did not come as usual from the Book Trade Association, uh, but it came from an institute that focused on securing critical infrastructures. Again, uh, we're talking about what happened 10 years ago. Lars, Gori, this brings us indeed to the end of this episode. And uh, Lars, in particular to you, many, many thanks for sharing your time with us, for being on this podcast with us. This has been very, very interesting. And we thank you, dear listeners, for your interest in our podcast. And please do not forget, Gori mentioned it at the beginning. Stay tuned. We have uh, several more episodes in the pipeline, which will be also very, very super interesting. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was Leading Corporate Transformation, the podcast by VHU Otto Beisheim School of Management, powered by PwC. 
Editorial team Marvin Schuna and Simon Gerlach. 